Who's ready for deliverance? Who is ready for an exodus out of this land? Who's ready to hear a voice like a trumpet and to go up to the mount of God? See, I'm ready. I've been ready for years. Every moment of every day of every month of every year that goes by, I am more ready for deliverance. And who just wants to dig out of their house? I mean, what an interesting time. It's not lost on me where we are as we shift now from the book of the beginning, the Bereshit, Genesis, now to the Exodus. The timing is Fascinating to me, interesting, tis the season for digging out. This is a country that is weary from coronavirus, weary of racism, weary of protests turned riots, just weary of the whole thing. And as Jesus said, because of the increase of lawlessness, most people's love will grow cold, Matthew 24, 12. A verse we've quoted over the years, we've seen play out in, in little bits, but it seems to get bigger and bigger as that birth pang becomes more relevant to the moment of the day. Because of the increase of lawlessness, most people's love will grow cold. And please understand me very clearly because these are tenuous times that when I talk about lawlessness, I'm not talking about protesting the loss of the life of George Floyd. That should be protested. That is not okay. It's the lawlessness. It's the rioting. It's the flames. It's the anger that takes over. The Bible says be angry, but do not sin. And Jesus said these times would happen. These times would be upon us. And I believe we can speak to, there are some things in the study this morning that we can look at and consider that speak to this. I just wanna say to you who are in Christ Jesus this morning, we have one primary responsibility and that is to pray. And so I'm calling on you, Bridge Fellowship, and anyone tuning in to pause and pray. Not to react, pray before you post. Call on the name of Jesus before you call out somebody else. And let's put our trust and our faith in him. I, I see while we were worshiping, I got this picture in my mind of, of the church, of Christians rising up, oh, not, not disappearing in the rapture, but rising above all of this work of the flesh in the spirit to restrain all the evil that we're seeing in our world. Christians need to stand up in peace and in love and in the truth, and it begins as we pray. And so I encourage you to do that. Well, we're in the book of Exodus. There are many things, obviously, on my mind and I'm sure on your minds this morning, but we're gonna stick with where we are. Exodus chapter one, verse one. Let's just open up the book. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, they came each one with his household, Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. 
and Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty or numerous so that the land was filled with them. Fathers, we open up this second book, Lord of Torah, second book of the Bible. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would pour out on us fresh and new the spirit of revelation. A spirit, Father, that goes beyond our comprehension of the words of this book, but the application in our lives. Even as we recognize the correct, the sound, the biblical interpretation that you would make a profound spiritual application in us. This morning and and as we go forward, as many teachings as you allow in in this book, we pray that we will hear with ears open to the Spirit of God, to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church today. And I believe and I know that these words are every bit as relevant as the words of Genesis have been to us, as the words of Revelation at the end of Scripture and every word in between. Lord Jesus, we know this is your living and active word. So would you be alive and active in us and in our hearts this morning? as we read and study and process these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. A baby in a basket, a burning bush, a river of blood, and a slew of plagues, a lamb sacrificed, a people set free, a cloud by day and a fire by night, a sea divided and an army drowned, Bread from heaven, water from a rock, a mountain all in smoke, a trumpeting voice, a law given, the pavement of sapphire, a face that shone, a tent of meeting, and the glory of the one called I am. Such vivid pictures. Each one of these, a painting in and of itself, remarkable moments of an epic story that we are now going to enter together. And as I said, the timing for heading into the book of Exodus is not lost on me. At this age, at this time, at the end of the age, but I remind you, there is a greater Exodus coming. Our Exodus, our departure from this world as it is. And when we return, we will come back to a world that Jesus causes to be in perfect peace. There is a marvelous future ahead. Put your hope in the Lord and trust in that. But here's another question for you this morning. You ever feel like the best time for our departure has come and gone? Like for me, the night before 9-11 would have been a good time to be raptured. Why not just before COVID-19? Why not prior to the death of George Floyd and the riots of this weekend? Why are you waiting, Lord? How long, oh Lord? And if you've asked that question or think that thought, boy, you join the writers of scripture. How many times in the Psalms from, from Job, 
And from the writers of scripture, do we hear that sentiment? How long? How long, O Lord? Psalm 90, verse 13. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Man, I can relate to that one. Do return, O Lord. How long? By the way, just before the psalmist wrote that, Psalm 90, verse 13, in Psalm 90, verse 11, he wrote, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And then he says, do return, O Lord, how long? By the way, that psalmist is Moses. Moses who wrote Psalm 90. And Moses knew something, had learned something by the time he wrote that beautiful song. And that is that while we wait for, while we long for, while we greatly desire deliverance, it's never a good idea to get out ahead of the Lord. It's never a good plan to rush God's plan. In fact, it cost his people 40 years. And I'm not talking about the 40-year wandering in the wilderness. It cost his people 40 years. I'm talking about when he, their deliverer at the time, Moses, had to flee Egypt at the age of 40 and not come back until he hit the age of 80. 40 years. Why? Because he took what he considered to be justice into his own hands. He acted with violence, murdering a man because he thought it was the right thing to do, the just thing to do. Something's got to be done here. And we'll look at that more closely on Wednesday night. It's never a good idea to grab hold of the plans of God and force it forward into our program, our plan, our time. We let God do things in his time. And we have been in what has felt like for many a long season of waiting. May I suggest to you before our exodus, even from homes and as we start to gather again, small groups and then larger and larger and back into being a full assembly, let me just suggest that it is still a good time to renounce our, forgive me for this, our sacred cows. It's time to let go of our sacred cows. That is, in all seriousness, to abandon our trust in the things of Egypt. So that's what the golden calf was. It was a thing of Egypt. People put their trust in something tangible, something they had seen and could hold on to and could represent for them. And we do the same thing when we put our trust in the things of the world. They become our sacred cows. It is a good time yet for us to pause and consider who God is, what God is doing in each of us, that we might be ready to go forth into the glory of God. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. If you have a Bible, turn over to Galatians real quickly. Galatians chapter five, as Pastor Rick goes off note for just a moment. Galatians chapter five, with this ringing in your ears that it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh profits 
nothing. Let's be clear about what the difference is. How do I know I'm acting in my flesh versus acting in my spirit? Galatians chapter five, verse 19 tells us the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, it's that word pornea, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Everything on that list and more, these are the deeds of the flesh, and the flesh profits nothing. If you're feeling any of this, if you're acting in any of this, the flesh profits nothing. It will do you no good. The Spirit gives life, and the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Why? because it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Jesus says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Why the sidetrack there? The book of Exodus begins with a people in slavery and it ends with the glory of God. Just this book. I'm not talking about the rest of Torah or the rest of the story. Just this part of the story. Exodus chapter one to Exodus 40 begins with people enslaved and ends with the glory of God. And that can be, should be, hopefully will be the picture of your life and mine. Beginning as a people enslaved to the flesh, to the bonds of sin, but set free to the glory of God. That's where we're going. That's where the book goes. Check it out. If you'd like a sneak peek, go over to Exodus chapter 40. Go ahead, go there. We'll see where this thing ends before we even get started. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, which reads, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now watch this. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That same thing would happen later in Solomon's temple. We'll see if we get there, Lord willing. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. That means their journeys were up to God. Their departure was his call, not theirs. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. That could be days, that could be months, that could be years. It was God's call. And then in verse 38, for throughout all their journeys, watch this, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and there was fire in it, note that, in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. I mean, that blows my mind. Can you even imagine? Daily, the Shekinah glory of God, that Shekinah cloud billowed and glowed in and around the tabernacle. Nightly, holy fire filled it Glowing through the woven walls. Amazing. To walk by the tabernacle in the camp of Israel at night was to see an entire 
tent aglow with glory. That was real life for a new generation that grew up in the presence of the Lord on a 40-year journey of faith. That was their reality. That's what these kids born at the time, born in the wilderness, would grow up to watch and see and understand and know the very presence of the Lord central to the camp. And so this morning, as it were, we come out of slavery and embark on a great journey. And that journey must be centered on the glory of the Lord. See, when it's all about the Lord, it's never about us. But we take our eyes off of him, it becomes very much about us. And that's never a good place to be. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, note this, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. What does that mean? That means the glory comes from him and takes us to him. You see, some people will translate that from glory to glory. They'll say, well, that means we go from one stage of glory to another stage of glory, and I become yet more glorious. I I can see where you might get that idea, but the point is the glory is his, and it comes from him and takes us to him. We get caught up in his glory. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. From glory, the glory of God, to glory, the glory of God. And I am caught in this amazing move of his spirit to go on a journey to be in the presence of his glory. The Hebrew title of this book that we're entering is not Exodus. That's the Greek label. In fact, most of the words uh, or the names of the books that we have here in, in Torah, what the church calls the Pentateuch, the Pente- even Pentateuch is a Greek name for it. And we have Greek names for all the first five books, Genesis, Genesis in the Greek, which is actually Bereshit in the Hebrew. Genesis meaning beginning, Bereshit, meaning in the beginning. But this is a little different. We have Exodus, and Exodus is the exact Greek word, Exodus. We see it in Hebrews 11.22 that says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the Exodus of the sons of Israel. And Exodus in the Greek simply means a departure or a going forth. I tried to find an equivalent word in the Hebrew, and the first time we see such a word that means the same thing isn't even until chapter three, verse 10. That is, in the context of a departure, note this, Exodus chapter three, verse 10, therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Bring out. The word in that is is the word yatsah, in the Hebrew, which is go forth, go out, but don't write that word down because that's not the title either. So it's interesting that while we title this book Exodus, which is Exodus in the Greek, the Hebrew is Yatsah, and Yatsah would mean the same thing, but it's not called the Yatsah. In fact, ask a practicing Jew today, and they call this book Shemot. Shemot. Now, if you're jotting that down, just write S-H-E-M-O-T, Shemot. What does that mean? 
names. Names. And these are the names. It's how the book begins. It's the name given by the Jewish people to this text, Shemot. Shemot, names. It's important to note that. Something else that you need to see, if you're reading in the NASB translation of the Bible, you might note that it begins with now. Other translations leave the now off and just start out. These are the names of the sons of Israel. Both are wrong. Both miss what's really there. There's a conjunction there. It's va in the Hebrew, and va means and. The book begins, the story begins, and these are the names. Why? Because this is a continuing saga. Moses, without skipping a beat, picks right up where he left off at the end of the beginning, the end of Bereshit, Genesis, and continues straight on into Exodus. You almost don't even need a title for the book because this is the continuing story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now the sons of Jacob. And, va, we continue on. What's interesting is we continue on, but we really slow up by comparison to Genesis. Genesis spans some 2,500 years. Exodus covers 82 years in total. From the birth of Moses to the people's arrival at Mount Sinai, the Mount of God. And then after Exodus, the rest of Torah. In fact, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the next four books of the first five will only cover 120 years all told. Exodus through Deuteronomy. 82 of those 120 will be covered in Exodus. And by the way, the first 80 years blow by in the first two chapters of Exodus. We'll go 80 years in two chapters, Wednesday night. If you tune in, buckle up, because we're gonna fly through 80 years in one night. Around the book in 80, no wait, 80 years, never mind. We're gonna go through it. But then you get to chapter three, and it's like, whoa, and we're there two years through the whole rest of Exodus. And then beyond that, we will continue to travel with the sons of Israel, the continuing saga. And these are the names, the Shemot. Now, don't forget, this continuing saga, though only 120 years from Exodus to Deuteronomy, follows a 430-year sojourn in Egypt, and that's important to note. So add another 40 years of real-time desert dwelling to the 430 that they would sojourn in Egypt, and the children of Israel will have been out of the promised land for close to five centuries, 470 years. As we move, listen, as we move from glory to glory, quick exits from hardship are not God's primary objective in our lives. Let me say that again. Quick exits from hardship are not God's primary objective in our lives. In fact, the Lord's first order of business with you, with me, with all humanity can be summed up in one word and that word is redemption. Redemption. Last time we studied the book of Exodus, the Shemot, I said, if you could put a stethoscope up to the heart of God, I think you'd hear redemption, 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 redemption. 
God's heart beats with redemption for people, for men, for women, for all of this world. And we see it here first and foremost with his people Israel as he dials down to give us a broader picture. From a narrower perspective, Psalm 111 verse nine, he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Psalm 130 verse seven, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Note that, he will do it though that job is not yet realized. He will redeem Israel. Isaiah 43, verse one. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Can I just say to you who are redeemed, who have given your lives to Jesus, if you are among the redeemed, do not fear. Do not fear for your life. You belong to him. The Shemot is the story of the redemption of a people from Egypt. But get this, it's not only a story of the collective redemption of the sons of the people of the nation of Israel. It points to a deeper intimacy and these are the names. The names And then he goes on to list the 12 sons by name. What's the point? God is redeeming each one of us name by name by name. These are the names. God is interested in the names. The firm foundation of God stands, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 2.19, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows the names, as well as I know of Corey and Hannah and Hayden and Anna Marie and Naomi and Christopher and David and Cheryl and Josiah. See, I added you in there. You're welcome. As well as I know these names, the Lord knows the names, calls the names, redeems people name by name. The Lord knows who are those who are his. Now listen to this because it's important to understand the nuance. Redemption, redemption in and of itself is instantaneous. Redemption is a moment. The moment the purchase is made, the item is redeemed. The moment the price is paid, redemption has happened. The second it is handed over, you're free. You are free to go forth if you accept the offer. By redemption, which is truly the significance we will see of the Passover lamb that's introduced in chapter 12. For the first time, we will see the redemption price symbolized in blood, paid in the blood of a lamb before the children go forth. But I'll tell you what, the moment that lamb is sacrificed, the journey begins. Because redemption is instantaneous. In an instant, the people were redeemed and they were able to leave, to depart, to make their exodus name by name from Egypt. But if you were listening, let me say this again, 
but if quick exits from hardship are not his primary objective, and yet redemption is instantaneous, how does that work? Redemption happens in a moment. But redemption is part of a larger process. A process that the Lord began working on centuries among the people of Israel before the moment of redemption happened. Understand this, redemption always follows preparation. There's always a preparation going on in a life, in a person, in a name first before redemption comes. So that as redemption is paid, the person can be brought to it, can understand it, can receive it. And sometimes, man, that process is messy. Sometimes there's a deep dive into depravity. Someone comes to the end of themselves before they come to and recognize the moment of redemption. For others, the moment of redemption comes much earlier on in life and they're able to walk in that much longer. But there's always a process, a preparation that precedes redemption. And then it doesn't stop there. Once redemption has occurred, Exodus chapter 12, the picture happens. Picture of, of course, the cross. Once that moment has taken place and redemption is received, the process continues with sanctification. So you see the arc here. There's preparation that brings to redemption followed by sanctification. And all the way through from beginning to end, the Lord knows the names of those whom he has redeemed. Name by name by name. From glory to glory. From his glory to glory to his glory as he calls us, prepares us. We get redeemed and we take off on this marvelous journey of sanctification to be in the presence of God, which ultimately is glorification. It's an amazing process God has us in. But here's, here's the thing, here's the issue, here's the problem. I want it now. He's patient. I say, hurry up. He says, wait. I get exasperated. Thank God he is long-suffering. That's a word we don't see translated in the New American Standard Bible. You'll see it in the King James translation, long-suffering. Long-suffering. We see it translated in other ways, slow to anger, patient to move, long-suffering. Man, you think you've suffered long? <laughs> Try being the Lord Try preparing, redeeming, and sanctifying people name by name by name by name by name. That takes some patience. And God is long-suffering. Exodus 34, verse six, when he gives that self-revelation of his goodness before Moses, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh El. That is the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Well, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter two, verse four, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and long suffering? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You think you've suffered long in this life? Try being long suffering. You think you've had to wait a long time? Even as I say that, I think of my son, Christopher. My dear friend, Judy, you both are probably watching right now. Hi, guys. Waiting in Ghana for Christopher's adoption to come home to be released. 
We have waited two years. God has been preparing much longer. And Christopher, God will continue working in you long after because he is long-suffering. And so after now in Exodus, a long preparation, the Shemot brings us to a great redemption. But, but this book will only introduce us to sanctification. We'll only get the front edge of sanctification that we'll see further and underway in the rest of Torah and all the way up to this day with the nation of Israel. This is a work yet unfinished. It is yet to be completed. It will be. God will finish what he started with the people of Israel. But this book, the book of Shemot, the book of names we could call it, reveals this very personal one-to-one approach to redemption, name by name by name. I'd like you to skip over just a moment to the last couple verses of chapter two and note this, watch this. It says in verse 24, chapter two, God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice. But that word, that phrase, took notice, yada, is literally translated new. He knew them. Name by name by name. If you feel forgotten this morning, if you wonder where it is that you matter, God knows you. By name. He knows your name. He's calling your name. If you've received his redemption that he offers to you by name, then you're written on the palms of his hands. You are written on his heart, as we sang earlier. He knows your name. And he writes down your name. Speaking of names, in the Shemot, Exodus, God manifests for the first time the true nature of his name. Look over at chapter three, verse 14. Exodus 3, 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am Yahweh. It's called the Tetragrammaton. It's that four Hebrew letter name, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Yav, some say Jehovah, others say Yahweh. We're not exactly sure because it depends on the nuance of the Hebrew language, but Yahweh is probably as close as we can get. Yahweh, I am, he says, I am. Now you're gonna see that translated throughout the Hebrew scriptures as the Lord. Anytime you see the Lord in small caps, You can say Yahweh because that's the name, the I am. It's important to note this. This is his actual name. Prior to Yeshua, until we get to Jesus, this is the only name of God that's given. We talk about all the names of God, El Shaddai, El Roy, El Elyah, or El Elyon, and all these. Those are descriptions. El Shaddai, God Almighty, is a description of who he is. Yahweh is is his moniker. Yahweh is his name. If you look over again at Exodus chapter six, verse two, something that I caught when we were in Genesis, I find this fascinating. God spoke further to Moses and he said to him, I am the Lord. Literally in Hebrew, Ani Yahweh. Ani Yahweh. 
And I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, they'll use the name Lord. They'll, they'll use the name Yahweh. They did a, a few times in Genesis. And he's referred to as Yahweh, of course, because Moses wrote Genesis. I'll explain how we know that in just a second here. But he didn't, he says, he didn't reveal himself. He didn't make himself known to them by the name of Yahweh. If you read on, he said, I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, Ani Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So God previously showed himself as, as powerful, as the God who sees, as God everlasting, as God most high. But now he reveals himself as Yahweh. Why is that important? Because Yahweh, I am, means he's present. El Shaddai, almighty God, all-powerful God. But now Yahweh, from powerful to present. Present so present that you could not walk by the tabernacle without knowing God was right there, Yahweh. Present in the midst of his people, in the now, in the moment, in the midst. That's the whole point of his glory, filling up the tabernacle to be central among his people. And think about it again. Imagine again, you look over at the tent of meeting in the daytime and it's covered with a thick shining cloud lit up, and then you look toward the center of that massive camp of Israel at night, and there's a glow of holy fire emanating out from the tabernacle. Yahweh, God, I am present. I am now. Oh yes, he is the God who was and is and is to come, but that's because he always is. He's always in the moment. He is always immediate. He is always present. And what's happening in the Exodus, and don't miss this, this is a huge step forward from God as presented prior to this time. A step forward in God's dealings with people. A step toward what would become an even greater intimacy. God among his people would become God in his people. Matthew 18, 20, Jesus said, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. Luke 17, 21, Jesus said, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Man, that one's been misunderstood and mistranslated over the years. People saying the kingdom of God is in our midst, that means we're the kingdom and we can do it. No, that's not what it means. When Jesus said, behold, the kingdom is in your midst, he was talking about himself. Because in the midst of that conversation that day, Jesus was there, the king was there, the centerpiece of the kingdom. The kingdom is in your midst, I'm right here. I'm right here. <laughs> Years ago, Cheryl and I, when we were young married, before we had kids, we had some dear friends who had a daughter named Lauren. 
And Lauren was this adorable little kid. And I remember at about two, maybe two and a half years old, she was very uh, articulate as a two-year-old, running around the house. And we would play this game with her where we would make her disappear. We'd just say, oh, Lauren's gone. Where's Lauren? Where's Lauren? And she'd giggle and run around the room. We'd say, where's Lauren? And then when she got tired of it, she'd come stand right in front of me. And I'd go, where's Lauren? And she'd say, I'm right here. I'm right here. And I'd say, where's Lauren? I'm right here. And you know, I'd, I'd try not to get her upset. I think she believed she was really invisible, but she would say, I'm right here. I wonder how, God, how often God says to you, says to me, I'm right here. I'm right here. Oh, Lord, how long until you, I'm right here. Oh, God, why don't you, I'm right here. Yahweh, I am. And Jesus made it more clear. John 14, 19, he said, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. This has been my greatest lesson over the past several weeks and that is the immediacy of God. Christ in me, right here, right now. Hey, listen, I understand. I know that this live streaming thing is not ideal. I am a great proponent of the assembly of the saints. I love when the church gathers. I love when we worship together. I love when we're in the word together. I miss the dynamic, as I said earlier, of just asking a question and having some kind of response. I really miss the dynamic of throwing out a, a horrible pun and watching multiple eyes roll back in their heads. I miss that. I miss the warmth. I miss the love. I miss the dynamic of the Spirit of God among us as a larger gathered corporate group of people. I love it. I miss it. I desire it. I long for it. And by the way, in case you think I don't, I haven't even worshiped with my wife and my kids at home for 10 weeks. I miss them. I want that. But you know what? All the while, while we're looking for our needs to be filled and for what we want and what we desire, God is not hindered by any of this. I'm right here, ever present, always immediate. Eva was saying earlier this morning, isn't it remarkable that he gave us prayer? That any time we can stop and immediately talk to him and know that he hears us, that he is with us, I'm right here. God is not hindered by any of this, are you? Brother, sister, if you're struggling with this, I get it, I understand, but please note, as much as we need fellowship, I am wants to be all you need. Not this building not this fellowship, not our lives interacting with other humans. Oh, those are all valuable, important things. But I am wants to be all you need. Could you exist in the world with none other than Yahweh, the very present, immediate, personal God, Yahweh? He said in Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth 
for I am God and there is no other. No other replacements, nothing else to get in the way, no, as I said earlier, sacred cows. Between us and him, just me and him. Which makes, by the way, our assembly all the more beautiful. Let me give you an outline for the Shemot. If you want to outline the book, we can put it into four parts. And you can make it into all kinds of parts. And I originally had three, but I realized we really need to add a fourth. And so here's the outline. Chapters one through four, deliverer. As we deal primarily with Moses and his being raised up as the deliverer. Chapters one through four, deliverer. Chapters five through 18, deliverance. The deliverance of the people of Israel. We'll go through the plagues to the Passover lamb to that final fateful night and then their exodus out of Egypt as they head toward the Mount of God. So chapters one through four, deliverer. Chapters five through 18, deliverance. Chapters 19 through 24, delivery part one. Because chapters 19 through 24, we will see the delivery of the Torah. The delivery of the law of God given to Moses. And of course, it, Torah would expand, adding in uh, further writings as we go all the way through Deuteronomy and we follow the story of the children of Israel as, as they depart from Mount Horeb and go into the wilderness. But the delivery of the law, delivery part one, and then finally, and I had to section this out, it's important, chapters 25 through 40, delivery part two, tabernacle. Tabernacle. Because all of that time, all of those chapters are spent focused on the construction of the tabernacle. You might go, wow, I get it. For the architects among us, Paul, you'll enjoy that. But what about the rest of us? Serious? 15 chapters of architecture? It's stunning. Because it's 15 chapters of Jesus, as we will talk about. So, Deliverer, chapters 1 through 4. Deliverance, chapters 5 through 18. Delivery, part 1, Torah. Chapters 19 through 24, and then delivery part two, tabernacle, chapters 25 through 40. There's your outline. We'll follow that through as we, as we study through the book. Of course, the author, the author of Shemot, it's not Moses, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. The author is the Spirit of God. We've got to point that out and remember 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The man of God, I note down out of the corner of my eye, my daughter Hannah sitting on the row here, and guess what, daughter? It's Anthropos. It's all of us, the human of God. So this applies not to the men, but to men and women, to all who are of humanity, that we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the Holy Spirit, God breathes the Shemot, the book of Exodus, as we call it. The writer is Moses. Now what's interesting, and it always seems to be, that the liberal scholars want to undermine any truth of Scripture. That's what they seek to do. They will discount or deny or discredit Moses as the author of the Shemot, of Exodus. But the proof is in the testimony. Let me show you this. If you skip over to Exodus 17, Exodus 17, verse 14, or just jot it down and note this, 
Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Chapter 17 is Israel's war with the Amalekites who are trying to pick them off as they're traveling, going especially after those who are weak and at the back of the pack, which is exactly what the devil does. But after they destroy the Amalekites, after they win this battle, God tells Moses, write it in a book. What book? The Shemot. Write it down, Moses. By the way, Josephus tells us that Moses was a highly trained, learned, articulate prince of Egypt. That in his upbringing and his first 40 years of living in Egypt, he had the best of the best education in the world. He wasn't a country bumpkin. Moses knew his stuff. And so God tells him to write it in a book. Skip over to chapter 24, verse 3. Chapter 24, verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Where did he write them? In the Shemot. In this book. Chapter 34. Skip on over to that. Chapter 34, verse 27 which tells us, the Lord said to Moses, write down these words for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments. Moses is the penman, the writer. Skip all the way over to the end of Torah, Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 31, Deuteronomy 31, verse 24. I gotta tell you, while you're turning there, I'm so excited. When we began this journey as a fellowship over 16 years ago now, we started in Genesis, and, and if you've been tracking, you know we went through the whole Bible together. But it was the first time I had done it. That is book by book by book by book. There are several that I hadn't touched before, like <laughs> Leviticus. I did not wanna teach Leviticus. When we get there after Exodus, you will find it's one of my favorite books in Scripture. It is profound. It's remarkable. It's wonderful. Deuteronomy was one of those, this long book. And I'm like, wait, great. Here we go with 32 some odd chapters of a restatement of the whole law, 33, 34 chapters in all. I didn't want to restate, redo all of that, but what a marvelous. Deuteronomy is a book of profound prophecy. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Deuteronomy 31, verse 24 says, it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord saying, take this book of the law and place it beside, note this, beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may remain there as a witness against you. Why beside it? Because as they journeyed, it was a work in process. That is, Moses was still writing in, recounting along with the words of Torah, the occurrences of Torah. That is the history of God working with this people and all coming together as Moses quite obviously wrote these things down. Man, there is testimony of his penmanship in Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy inclusive, but... The greatest proof of the penmanship of Moses writing the Shemot 
It's the testimony of Jesus. It's the testimony of Jesus. Always go to Jesus. What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter seven, verse 10. Jesus said, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, Exodus 20, verse 12. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death, Exodus 21, verse 17. Jesus quoted that. Jesus quotes again, Mark chapter 12, verse 26. He says, regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, Exodus chapter three, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, Exodus 3, 15. The testimony of Jesus that Moses authored this book, the Shemot. But listen to this, John chapter five, verse 39. This should be familiar to many of you bridge uh, attenders, bridge fellowship. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus said, it is these that testify about me. But then he says, and you were unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And he's speaking of Antichrist. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Remember, from glory to glory. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Now, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders. He says this, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Why would you study through the book of Exodus? Why take the time? Because Exodus, the Shemot, is Torah's archetypal anticipation of all the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This book is the picture of redemption in Christ. And Paul said in Romans 23, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So even the redemption of Israel, it's a picture of redemption in Jesus. Think about this with me. Like Moses, like Moses, Jesus was born to be a deliverer, but he had to be rescued from his enemies at birth. Like Israel, Jesus was called out of Egypt. How did Jesus come out of Egypt? Well, he had to go down to Egypt first and an angel came to Joseph in a dream as Herod is breathing out his scheme of, of murder of all children in the region, all the male children. Sound familiar? As he breathes this murderous threat, an angel warns Joseph and Joseph got up, Matthew chapter two, verse 14, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, that is the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verse one, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, New Testament and Old Testament scholars will have a conversation. The Old Testament scholars saying, out of Egypt I have called my son refers to the sons of Israel. 
that he called my son Israel out of Egypt, and they would be right. But the New Testament scholar would say, no, no, it's prophetic because Matthew tells us that out of Israel I called my son. It's prophetic of, of Jesus, his son, and they would be right. The prophecy reaches in both directions. Hold that thought. Like the children of Israel going through the Red Sea, Jesus passed through the waters of baptism. And the Israelites, oh, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years. Jesus went out to the wilderness for 40 days. Israel and Jesus are like two sons, two firstborns, if you will. That may sound strange. There should only be one firstborn. Well, there are two firstborns in the scriptures, Israel and Jesus. Exodus chapter four, verse 22. The Lord says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So God calls the sons of Israel, the people of Israel as a group, his firstborn son, and yet Matthew 3, 16 tells us after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened. He saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, which one's the firstborn? They both are. You see, both firstborns knew the deprivation of bread and water in the wilderness. But while Israel, as firstborn, was disobedient and grumbling and rebellious, Jesus was obedient and prayerful and devoted. Which son are you following? <laughs> Which son do you take after? The disobedient, the grumbler, the rebellious, or the obedient, the prayerful, the devoted? Both were called firstborns. Which do you follow? And by the way, do you see why? Do you see why the secondborn son in the Bible so often replaces the firstborn? Do you understand the picture maybe a little bit better now that Isaac would replace Ishmael, Jacob would actually come before Esau, Perez before Zerah, Ephraim before Manasseh, Yeshua before Israel, though Yeshua shows up on the planet after yet he comes before. How, how else do you explain, how else do you portray one who comes after and before, one who is both the root and the descendant, Revelation twenty two sixteen. So Israel is a picture of the firstborn, but Jesus is the true firstborn, and Jesus being a Jew. As I've said in the past, he's the perfect Jew. He's the ultimate Jew. He's the ideal Jew, he is the firstborn of God. Not born in terms of created, but born, firstborn in terms of position. He has first place and preeminence. And Romans 8, 29 tells us, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Not the first one born, but the firstborn by position, by preeminence, by power. We see so many parallels, remarkably, in 
this book in the Shemot. Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law. You know what Jesus did? Matthew 5, verse 1. After his baptism, after his journey in the wilderness, those 40 days, he comes back in. Matthew 5, 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, Matthew tells us. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. What did he teach them? The Sermon on the Mount, we call it, but it's the constitution of the kingdom. As Moses went up to receive the law, Jesus went up to bring the new law of the kingdom, the constitution by which we will live as servants of his in the kingdom to come. And you can begin living that way now, by the way. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, take that as your constitutional right as a citizen of the kingdom. Well, again, there's a plethora of profound parallels to Jesus in the Shemot, as we will see. But I wanna show you just one more. If you'll turn in your Bibles over to Luke chapter nine. Luke chapter nine. Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the New Testament scriptures, Luke Chapter nine, in verse 28, and I'll begin reading, but keep turning there because you gotta see something. If you're not there yet, I'll show you in a moment. Luke 9, 28, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. I believe that's probably, um, what's the mount in the north? Somebody help me with this, huh? Hermon, Mount Hermon. I, I believe it's Mount Hermon. Others try to put it down in the, in the midst of the Jezreel Valley. No, I, I believe it's Mount Hermon in the north because they were up in the north at Caesarea Philippi. And so they go up to Mount Hermon to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his faith, face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming, literally flashing like lightning. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. Which, by the way, is fantastic that Moses is talking to Jesus in the promised land. We'll come back to that thought. But Moses and Elijah, and it says, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Wow, what a conversation. They were talking with him, the two greatest names in Israel remembered, at least prophetically, Moses the lawgiver and Elijah the great prophet. And they're standing there and they're speaking with Jesus in this moment that's called transfiguration because he is lit up. He's like flashing lightning. And they're talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the word in the Greek for departure is indeed exodus. They were talking about Jesus, exodus. Who? Moses and Elijah. Moses is talking with Jesus about the exodus of Jesus at Calvary. That's amazing to me. Psalm 40, verse 7 says, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Jesus said it. And the most significant of all the parallels in the Shemot between Moses or the people of Israel and Jesus, the greatest is Christ 
our Passover? Is Jesus in Exodus? Jesus in his departure. Jesus who was slain on the anniversary of Passover. It couldn't be more perfect. He became for us the Passover lamb. As Peter proclaimed, 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Hey, redemption has a name and his name is Jesus. He is our redemption. Colossians 1.13, for God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And these are the names, the Shemot. It's the story of redemption and deliverance, name by name by name by name. And Jesus said in John 10, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. We hear our names spoken by Jesus. Can you even imagine that moment when you actually hear Jesus call your name? He will. He'll speak it. Who's ready for a deliverance? <laughs> right now, this morning, in the immediacy of Yahweh, Paul says, Romans 10, 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can be saved right now. Your redemption in a moment, immediate. God has worked a long-suffering preparation to get you to this moment that you might be redeemed. And once that is received, as I said earlier, we will go into, you go into a sanctification. That's our journey from glory to glory. That's the journey we're on. And he calls his own by name. He calls us by name. And we hear his voice and we know him. The day of our deliverance, the day of our departure is near. And no name will be forgotten by God. He's gonna remember everyone. In fact, every name is written down not just in a baby book, not just in a memoir. Every name of every person who has ever lived in the history of the world is this morning already written down. And the question is, where's your name written? Which book? Revelation 20 describes the book of life, which is the book, man, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. That's all that matters. Your name's there. That's immediate entrance. Your redemption paid for, you're covered, your sin's forgiven. You go on to live forever with Jesus. In the Lamb's book of life, if your name's there, praise the Lord this morning, you have nothing to fear. You are being called from his glory to his glory. But Revelation 20 also talks about the books of deeds, multiple books of deeds. And there are many of them because there are many names of people who want to be known by what they did by what they accomplished, by the good works 
that they performed. And the books of deeds details, lists the good and the bad of every named person whose name is not in the Lamb's book of life. If your name is in the book of deeds and not in the book of life, you will have to prove your righteousness before God. And it's impossible. None is righteous, no, not one. I want my name written in the book of life. How do I do that? Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how it's written. And by the way, Revelation chapter three, verse five tells us, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name, Jesus says, before my father and before his angels. And if you can imagine, we come before him, called up to him. Jesus stands before us and before the Lord. Jesus looks at me and goes, this one's Rick and he's mine. He belongs to me. Jesus will confess your name if you will receive his redemption. Let's pray together. Lord, to be known. Oh, Jesus, it's, it's at the heart of humanity. We all want to be known from the most introverted to the most extroverted. We all crave relationship, even if it's just one or two or three or, or many. We want to be known, not to be alone, not to be forgotten. And Lord Jesus, what's marvelous about this to me is that there is no such thing as a forgotten man or woman to you. You know every name. And you know those who feel lost and forgotten and left out. And Jesus, I pray that they will hear and come to you this morning, their name spoken by the one who knows every name. I pray, Father, that we, by receiving your grace and forgiveness, will be among the named in the Lamb's book of life. And this morning as I pray, if you have never asked Jesus to come into your heart, to come into your life, to be your Lord and Savior, if you've never named him as your Lord, would you pray this with me right now, wherever you are, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. I wanna hear you say my name. And so this morning I pray, I declare you are the Christ you are my savior. You went to the cross. You became my Passover. And I believe you rose from the dead and you're calling my name right now. Oh Lord, come into my life. Change my life. From glory to glory, make me yours. And if you're a follower of Jesus, would you just continue this prayer with me? Lord, as we are being transformed from glory and again up to glory, I pray that you will connect us like never before by the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That we would be peacemakers in this world because blessed are those who are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God, you said, Lord. And so I pray that we would be peacemakers. We pray for peace. And we ask, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.